Isaiah chapter 18 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming down the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. You'll be fairly lost tonight uh, without having a Bible to be able to follow along. We do try to cover a fair amount of Scripture on the Sunday evening, fair being relative. And, uh, but we do try to do that. And, of course, everyone ought to be a little bit lost in church without a Bible. So um, that's a, a good sign. But you'll find the passage has been uh, marked for you, and you can turn right there. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. We remember that uh, chapters 13 through 23 of the book of Isaiah constitute kind of a major section within uh, the book of Isaiah. And there are several major sections of the book because it is 66 chapters long. But within this uh, 11 chapters, God is uh, bringing forth a series of prophecies that constitute uh, denunciations or the pronun- pronouncing of woes upon various, for the most part, Gentile nations that were in the area of Israel and of Judah, those nations that surrounded them. And God pronounced this woe upon them for the simple reason that because of their wickedness and because of their pride, uh, they were due the judgment that God was promising to pour out upon them. But there was a second reason for uh, why God would communicate this woe through a prophet of Judah. And it was in order that the God's people, the uh, people of Judah, would overhear this Uh, prophecies of coming judgment upon these nations and they would realize that it would be of no use to them to try and find security or hope in the um, kind of instability and uncertainty of the world that was all around them in the nations that surrounded them. And the children of Israel weren't very much different from us, and that is when a crisis occurs within our lives, very often the first temptation can be to turn to some person, some corporation, somebody that's got money, somebody that's got power, somebody that's got a connection that can fix this uh, thing for us, rather than turning to God as our first option. And so God is basically saying, all of these nations are going to be judged. I, you are left with me alone as the sole uh, rock and stability, the answer to all of your problems, all your insecurities, all of your fears. And even as we sang in this last worship song before I came up, Christ alone, cornerstone, that's the same thing that... Uh, Jesus has said to us about what the world is going to be like for us as Christians in the last days, talking about the coming collapse of commercial Babylon, of religious Babylon, of the governments of this world, of the uh, infrastructures of the world. As you look at what he speaks of concerning the great tribulation period in the book of Matthew and the Olivet Discourse and then into the book of Revelation and other places as well. And the idea is that the idea is that God isn't say, saying, I'm including this in my word so that you will know how as Christians to navigate the great tribulation because we're not going to be here during the great tribulation. We're not appointed unto God's wrath and that's what that period is about. Christ bore the wrath for our sins our rebellion against God, and we don't need to bear them a second time. But it's in order to realize that there's no future in the physical 
world around us that is built upon a rebellion against God. There's no hope. Judgment is coming upon it. So that when troubles come into our life, we will realize we have but one option. These troubles are intended in order to force us to go deeper in our relationship with God than we ever have before. That was the message God was trying to give to Judah. They were not accepting the message, not very well, not very many of them. And uh, and yet God was pronouncing that to them. And so the lesson is is an ancient one that God is trying to make the point to his people as significant application to us today as we're awaiting the Lord's return ourself and the promise of judgment, not just upon the nations that surround any one nation, but coming upon the whole world in the form of the great tribulation. Chapter 18, verse 1. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And so it talks about the land shadowed with buzzing wings, very exotic kind of language. It talks about the, uh, part of the world that's beyond uh, the rivers of Ethiopia. The Nile River goes down into Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters. And so this very kind of exotic language to describe a very exotic people. And so you get into uh, the continent of Africa, you drop down bef- below the uh, Arab or the, uh, uh, you go sub-Saharan uh, desert part of, of Africa and you come in away from the Arab section of it into this very, very exotic continent called Africa and Ethiopia was a part of that. And so here the context of what's happening in chapter 18, it can be a very mysterious chapter uh, to us if we just hit it cold and don't understand a little bit about what is going on here. But as we mentioned this morning, the entire Middle East was uh, living under this great threat of uh, Assyria, their military, uh, their uh, uh, expansion of their world-ruling empire. And they had already expanded significantly. They were well-established, but now their desire was to uh, conquer Syria, conquer Israel, conquer Judah, conquer Ethiopia, conquer uh, Egypt, uh, conquer Edom, conquer Moab. All of these nations that surrounded or were very close to the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And so they were in an expansion mode. They were very ruthless military uh, machine. And uh, boy, I, I thought a little bit later, it must have been rough to be a Syrian and sit through the service this morning. But um, but every group of people in the world is funny. Anytime some group of people get into the position of power, of being a world-ruling empire, uh, we end up doing stuff that we're ashamed of no matter what our nationality is. And uh, yet you meet Assyrians today, and they're the kindest, most wonderful people that you could ever meet in your whole life. How am I doing, huh? Bridge building here at the moment, but actually it's quite true in, uh, in most respects. So 
this Assyrian Empire expanding the threat. And so all of these nations realized that they couldn't withstand Assyria on their own. So they were endeavoring to establish these political and uh, military alliances with other nations in the hope that if they could get a confederation of two, three, four, five nations that they might be able to, as a block, withstand uh, being defeated and crushed by this cruel military machine. So it's Ethiopia's uh, opportunity to do that now. They realize they are also on the menu for the Assyrian Empire, and so they begin to send messengers out to Egypt. They send it out to Judah. They send it out to who we don't know who else uh, on things to see who will join us in order for our own self-preservation. It's interesting that that word woe, as it begins verse 18, or, or chapter 18, so the whole idea there is a little bit different than uh, uh, everything else that's going on in these series of woes through these 11 chapters. Uh, when God pronounces a woe, a prophetic woe upon all these other nations, he really means, hey, trouble is coming. But the idea when he speaks about woe here uh, to the Ethiopians, the idea is to listen up. The Ethiopians are not doing anything wrong in what they're going to do here in terms of the, the idea that they're doing something malicious or uh, unkind. Actually, they're going to extend an offer to Judah that in their eyes, from their perspective, is something that represents great generosity on their part, great kindness on their part. Uh, we know that you want to survive this period of Assyrian uh, domination of the world as much as we do, and so come and join with us. And it was a, in humanly speaking, a very generous offer that was being made uh, to them. And so the message goes out, it comes to Judah, and God essentially speaks to Isaiah uh, to tell the leadership and to tell Judah, don't take up their offer. And there were a lot of people in Judah at this time who were standing against Isaiah. Isaiah was telling the people, trust in God, trust in God. There's no future, there's no hope in trusting in the nations around us because they're all going to be wiped out. We have one place, there's only one place of safety and security in the world, and that's in our relationship with God. We've got to turn back to God. But there were a whole other group of people, powerful people, apostate people, backslidden people among God's people there that were saying, listen, that's all spiritual talk. That's fine for the synagogue. That's fine for the temple. But that's not going to hold up in real life. We've got to get some real alliances with Egypt. And let's give some consideration to this proposal that's being given to us by the Ethiopians. And God, in essence, speaks through Isaiah and essentially sends these messengers back to Ethiopia and declares uh, to them, go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin. Speaking of the Ethiopians, there was a um, historian speak of the fact that uh, both the Egyptians and the peoples who lined the Nile River at that time, uh, they uh, were oftentimes very tall of stature, slender, uh, and then they had this custom of shaving uh, their bodies completely of, of hair. And so go swift messengers to a nation tall, smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful in treading down. Ethiopia was powerful in its own right, whose land the rivers divide. And so many rivers divide and, and spread out therein. 
in Ethiopia. All the inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, uh, when he lifts up a banner uh, on uh, the mountains, you see it. When the trumpet blows, you will hear it. In essence, God is saying, send them back home, and I'm going to take care of this Assyrian threat in such a way that we don't need your help. I'm going to defend Jerusalem. I'm going to defend Judah. And one day you will receive a message for how uh, how, I, uh, how it is that I have done that. But I don't. we don't need your help. I don't need your help. I'll do it in my own way and in my own time. And so the Lord said to me, I take my rest, I look from my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew and the heat of harvest. God says, as I look at this great threat of Assyria coming against Judah, I'm completely at peace. I'm not anxious about what's going on. And as we saw this morning, when God is at peace, then as his children, we can be at peace. So God is basically saying to the Ethiopians, I'm not freaked out by Assyria. They don't frighten me. They don't trouble me in the slightest. I don't lose a moment's sleep. I'm not anxious. I'm not on any medication over this. I'm completely at peace related to them. I don't need any help. I don't need your help. And I don't want you helping uh, my people. And then he speaks about the judgment that will come upon Assyria, that he will bring upon their military. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is uh, ripening in the flower, in other words, it's just the right moment. God always waits for just the right moment, which is usually at least five minutes or five years uh, too late in my book. But he's not working by my agenda. He's working to develop spiritual maturity in me and Christ-likeness in me, which means he's operating in a completely different timeline in your life as well. So at just the right time, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks, and these are just the upper branches of, of a tree, effortless to cut away. When God wants to judge the Assyrians, it will be effortless for him to do so, and they will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds will eat them uh, all summer long, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. And we know, uh, again, as we're going to get to chapter 37 in some year, uh, in, in this particular book that God did, as we mentioned this morning, and I've mentioned several times through the book because it keeps referring back to that. God supernaturally and miraculously wiped out that Assyrian army. 185,000 troops in one night by way of a single angel. Not even an archangel. It's just Angel Bob. Just Angel Alex. He doesn't even name. They didn't even give a name. No description of him, no big like. He can stand on the sun and on the moon at the same time, and, and he can do all of these things and all. It was just like, send uh, John and to have him take care of that. And just one little angel goes and takes care of business. And then in verse 7, in that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. God says, as he sends the messengers back, I will take care of Assyria in my own way. 
One day the message will come to you and you will hear about what I have done and then you will send messengers back again, but not to entice my people uh, to join you in some alliance that moves them from a dependence on me, but you will come to worship the God of Judah, to worship me for what everyone in the world knows that only I could have done. The chapter is a very, very important one, especially for when we find ourselves in seasons of crisis in our life. Because again, the tendency is to want to put our trust in some human institution, some human something, somebody with a face on it. And that's the temptation that we face. We want to move and we want to do that. That temptation, uh, rather than turn to God first, that temptation becomes doubly strong and doubly dangerous when at that moment of crisis in our life, when we say, I want to turn to something human, uh, something that I understand, something that I can pat on the back, some, someone that will look me in the eye and make me a promise, even if they can't keep that promise. And, uh, and so that temptation to go in that direction, and then sometimes people out of the goodness of their heart, the kindness of their heart, they will show up just in that moment, and they will then offer all that they have or their resources to us. And yet, even when someone does something for us that is kind, it is done out of a motivation of graciousness, if it moves me from a dependence Upon God, from a complete dependence upon God in that situation, if it keeps me from being forced to go deeper in my relationship with God to withstand the situation, deeper in my commitment to God to be able to withstand the situation, then no matter how gracious or how kind the offer might be, then it is dangerous to us in God's purposes in our lives and we need to look at it in the same way that God did did with this gracious kind offer of Ethiopians and said very nice of you but we don't need you this is between me and them and I'm going to take care of them and I'm not going to use you in this situation and so sometimes just because offer uh, help is offered doesn't always mean that it's something that we should uh, take somebody up on if, it's, if I take uh, them up on it as a means of skirting having to go deeper in God or to trust Him in a way that I've never trusted Him before in my life. Chapter 19 begins a burden uh, or a prophecy against Egypt. And Egypt is oftentimes used as a type of the world uh, in uh, the Scriptures. And so... God had delivered Israel and Judah and children of Israel from Egypt, and now uh, they're being tempted to go back to Egypt for uh, their wisdom in the middle of all of this, uh, again, threat of the Assyrian threat. The burden against Egypt, and the idea is not just that God's communicating to Egypt, but he's telling the children of Israel, there's no future in putting your trust in Egypt. And you can name, I mean, you look at the world that we live in today. Every time a country gets into trouble, the first thing it wants to do is put its trust in another country and another country. And I mean, it's the whole thing's played over and over again. And so God is saying, listen to his people. Don't, don't play the game everybody else is playing. 
uh, put your trust in me. And he speaks now of uh, the coming judgment upon Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols or gods of Egypt will totter in his presence. You can almost hear them kind of shaking like an earthquake uh, in the temples. And the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. And uh, I will set, he describes here, God's judgment in the form of civil war coming upon Egypt. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Egypt was made up of 42 provinces in the same way the United States is made up of uh, 50 states. They were all had their own kind of identity, and so they began to fight against one another. There's so many means that uh, by which... Uh, uh, when God wants to destabilize a nation or judge a nation, that he can do it. How many of us uh, look at the United States of America? We are hardly a melting pot. I've never known us to be more divided into groups and, and pitted against one another like in my lifetime. It would be effortless uh, to bring this nation down through the introduction of civil war or fighting against one another. And that's what uh, he said that he would do with the Egyptians. I will set Egyptian against Egyptian. You don't have to be invaded from the outside to be wiped out. It can be done from the inside. Everyone will fight against uh, his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their counsel. They will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers, and the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord of hosts. And ultimately they were defeated uh, by the Assyrians following the inner division within the country uh, itself. Division is a dangerous thing. You know, United we stand, divided we fall, is the old saying. And nowhere is that more true than in the body of Christ and in a local church. Uh, the danger of division. The waters will fail from the sea. And so God is going to bring disaster. He's going to bring drought upon uh, the nation of Egypt and is a form of his judgment. The water speaking uh, will fail from the sea and the river, the Nile River, will be wasted and dried up. Their whole economy is going to collapse because their entire economy was tied to the Nile River. Everything, all of their prosperity came out of that river. It was the lifeblood of Egypt. And yet God said the river will be wasted and dried up. How many of you know that he can dry up a river? He can shut off the clouds. He can do a lot of things when he wants uh, to do those things. And we will look like little tiny puny people. Yeah, we've got our latest iPhone and we can tell, but we can't make it rain. And we can't make it snow, and we can't make plants grow, and all the rest of it. We get all goofy and heady on the basis of the stupidest things in the world. We are powerless in the face of the things that are really important, and those things are in God's hands. By the way, I am thankful for the recent rain. And the rivers will turn foul. 
The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and the rushes will wither for a lack of water. The papyrus reeds by the river, the Nile River, by the mouth of the river, everything sown by the river is going to wither up and be driven away and be no more. The fishermen who fished, so not only the farmers and, and those that made our, you know, things out of the reeds and out of uh, the rushes of, of uh, that were growing there, but the fishermen also will mourn. All those who lament uh, will lament, who cast hooks into the river. They will languish, who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. And so the complete collapse uh, of their economy and then God is going to bring uh, a collapse of wis- uh, Egypt's wisdom, the wisdom of the world. Surely the princes of Zoan, uh, Zoan are fools, Isaiah uh, declares. And the God declares it through him. Pharaoh's wise counselors, they give foolish counsel. How did you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise? He's, he's talking about these counselors. How could you go up to Pharaoh and sell yourself as a wise man to become one of his counselors? He said, how can you say to Pharaoh, I am a, the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Uh, let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against uh, Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Nuf are deceived. Uh, they who have uh, deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes, the Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst. God can put a perverse spirit upon uh, the leaders of a nation and lead them into this, doing the stupidest things that you could ever imagine. And, and that's the kind of thing that was going on in Egypt. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, and they have caused Egypt to err, and all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Neither will there be any work for Egypt, which uh, the head or tail branch, palm branch, or bulrush may do. And so he prophesies the complete collapse and exposure of the folly of Egypt's so-called wisdom. Egypt's wise men will fail them at the uh, time of the greatest need of the nation. What good is a counselor who can't understand what God's doing in the world? How smart is that counselor? How perceptive? How helpful is any counselor that, number one, doesn't know God, doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe that he's smarter than them, doesn't have a relationship with him, doesn't know how to hear his voice? What in the world can they tell a person in a time of crisis? They can wax eloquent and say all manner of things when everything is going great, everything is going right. But when the crisis hits, they get exposed. I'll tell you as Christians, we better listen to the Lord, not listen to the world's wisdom and the world's ways. It's been easy for people in this season of the history of the United States of America where 
We've had decades and decades, not counting the last decade, of almost unbroken prosperity. Money coming in hand over fist. The prosperity, the money-making, the enriching of a population of a nation that was unparalleled in human history. That was pre-2008. We lived in that period. We knew what that period was. Everybody can talk bad about God then. Everybody can be a big shot. Everybody can be a big mouth then. Because it's not being tested at that time. But then the judgment comes in. Then hard times come in. Difficulty comes in. And then all of a sudden this kind of wisdom gets exposed. They can shout and they can talk and they can act big and they can boast and they can laugh among one another when there's no real test or challenge of their wisdom. And then the hard times come and they always come. And it's a time to run back to the person who speaks for God, who knows God, who knows what God is doing in our age. What does his book say? What does the Bible say? And for our own selves, this season of history that God has called us to live for Him and to live victoriously for Him, joyfully for Him, I pray that not one of us in this room is turning to the world for its wisdom on how to raise our children or how to strengthen our marriages or the decisions that we make in life, how to be the neighbor we ought to be, what should be the priorities in our life, what will bring happiness and satisfaction and joy to our life. All of that is collapsing before our very eyes, and it will continue its collapse. It's all being exposed for the folly that it's always been. Only God knows what he's talking about. And sometimes it takes times of crisis and difficulty for people to realize that. And when we're in such a season, or perhaps even beginning a long such season in human history, then it's good for us to realize the world has nothing to offer me. I am going to get the mind of the Lord concerning every decision in my life, whether large or small. If I, get the, if I don't get the mind of the Lord concerning the small decisions of my life, I make those decisions on my own, or I take and accept the wisdom of the world that is contrary to God's wisdom, then those small problems have a way of becoming gigantic problems. The wisdom of man, it is a farce. It is a shell game. And it is being exposed today at its early part of its exposure in a way that it was exposed in this period of history in Egypt's day. It has nothing to offer a people in crisis. Only God has wisdom to offer people in crisis because only God knows what he's doing in a moment in human history. And he reveals that to his people who seek him for that wisdom and for that direction. Blessed is the man, David wrote, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, 
that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. He goes on then in verse 16 to declare that Judah will become a terror to Egypt, and in that day Egypt will be like, like women, and they will be afraid and fear the strongest of the men, the military among the men. They will become fearful because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. Egypt will at some point in time realize that this is more than just Assyria. This is just more than just us having a civil war. The God of Judah is bringing judgment upon us. And because they'll recognize that to be true, The land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. Sooner or later, the light went on for them, and they realized we are up against God in all of this. And in that day, here is the promise of better days ahead for Egypt. And this is characteristic of Isaiah, giving kind of the bad news in a in a near fulfillment of a particular prophecy and then moving to the end of the age to speak of uh, a, a little more fully of the history of a people. And he does that. He gives us the future of Egypt at the end of the age and the, the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. So During the kingdom age, there are going to be five cities that are going to be set aside uh, that are going to be centers for the worship of Jehovah, the Lord, in the nation of Egypt. And so uh, Jerusalem will be the place in uh, Israel, but Egypt is going to one day become a wholesale follower of the Lord. They will speak the language of Canaan. Uh, They won't give up. Uh, the Egyptian language that will still be spoken during the kingdom age for the Egyptians, but they will then learn Hebrew, the language uh, of Canaan, of the children of Israel, in order to understand the worship of the Lord and the worship experience during the kingdom age. They will swear by the Lord of hosts, and one will be called uh, the city of destruction. And so that was a particular city. In Egypt at that time, it would be one of those five cities. And in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar uh, to the Lord at its its host. It's going to completely give over to the worship of the Lord. And it will be a sign and a, a sign for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors and he will send them a savior. Speaking of Jesus at his second coming and a mighty one and he will deliver them. And then the Lord will be known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. So it's fun to read the news, isn't it? We see Egypt has got a lot of problems and Egypt is no friend of Israel uh, today. They're not as, (laughs) well, it's complicated in the Middle East. So there's a peace treaty with Egypt, but... Uh, It's not the greatest of relationship with them. But to realize as we read the news and we see so much of what's going on in the Middle East, to be able to look through the lens of prophecy all the way to the end of the age and realize that, hey, I know, sure, I'm reading online what's going on in Egypt today and what's happening in the hostilities and the Muslim Brotherhood and all of these kind of things, but I know how it all ends. It ends up being a nation that worships 
the Lord in the kingdom age. And it's wonderful to think about things in that way. And the Lord will be known to Egypt. The Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They'll make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord. And they'll perform it. They'll be sincere in their worship of the Lord. And the Lord will strike Egypt and he will strike uh, and heal it. And they will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. It's a wonderful future for uh, the nation of Egypt and the people of Egypt uh, uh, one day. And in that day there will be a highway uh, from Egypt. Again, speaking of the kingdom age, after the second coming of Christ, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, the Egyptian into Assyria. In other words, all this conflict that was going on between Egypt and Assyria at this time, and, and Judah and Israel were pulled into the whole thing. God is saying even these kind of perennial enemies of one another, seeking one another's destruction at one point in time in human history, in the kingdom age, he's going to bring all of them together in the worship of him. And in that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. (laughs) Look at that. I mean, who can bring Egypt, Assyria, and Israel together? Only the Prince of Peace can do that. And yet he is going to do that uh, one day. They will all become worshipers of the Lord Jesus in the kingdom age. And uh, in that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord's going to say that one day. Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And so uh, good days are uh, coming one day. So then we come into chapter 20, and we have this uh, prophecy against Egypt and Ethiopia in the form of kind of this symbolic demonstration that God calls upon uh, Isaiah to, to make. He's going to become a living parable uh, before Judah. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargam, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod, and he took it. So this is the date in which the Lord then spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amos, and this is what he commanded him. Go and remove the sackcloth from your body. Uh, Isaiah, during the period of his prophecy, during this time, he wasn't wearing fine linen. He was wearing sackcloth, a symbol of mourning for the judgment that was coming. And so he had a robe of sackcloth. And the Lord said, go and remove the sackcloth from your body. Take off that robe. Take the sandals off of your feet. And so he did, walking naked and barefoot. Now, they use the term naked here, but he didn't walk around naked. He simply took off his um, uh, outer robe and still had this, whatever was the equivalent of an undergarment in those days, kind of like a diaper of some kind. And, And so he took off the outer garment, no sandals. He's just left with this kind of girdle that he's, that he's uh, wearing for simply the sake of privacy. And the Lord commanded him to do that. And basically what he did in not having sandals or having even a robe on his back, that was the apparel or lack of apparel of a captive, of someone who had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians, by another nation. And so the Lord calls on him 
to do this. And the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three days for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia. So God had him do this for three years. Winter, spring, summer, fall. This is what he did. Sometimes we say, God, would you, I just, whatever you, just use me. I don't care how or what, I just want to be used by you. And you think about Isaiah, think about, we know from the language that's used in the book that he comes from, if not nobility, uh, he comes from something very akin to nobility. Um, he's a majestic man. He's a righteous man. He's a godly man. And you picture him here as this old man, noble. He's got his self-dignity like anyone else. And God calls on him to live out this living message to Egypt and Ethiopia to look at Isaiah, see him in this condition, and to realize that this is your future. And yet, here is a man who is willing for God to tell him to do anything and so surrender to God that he would do it. I mean, that's a pretty humiliating thing for God to ask someone to do. I mean, it's one of the most humiliating scenes in all of the Bible. Of course, um, Nothing approaches the most humiliating scene in all of the Bible. And that is the very Son of God hanging upon a cross with but a loincloth on. The creator of the heavens and the earth crucified by his creation. And yet this is something that he calls Isaiah to do. I think there's an important lesson that's found here. And And it's so hard. How do you, what do you do with this? Because on one hand, I look at it and say, well, there's a safe way to handle the passage, and then there's a risky way to handle the passage. And I always go to the risky. But in this one, I always look, I'm tempted to go to the safe. Because sometimes people who are unstable will look at something like this, think they've heard God, and then we'll see them at five points downtown. And uh, they're walking around in their Bermuda shorts or something and prophesying for God. But it does teach us, and I think it stretches us in in a good way, and I think in a way that those of us who've walked with the Lord the longest need to be stretched. God can call us to do anything. And sometimes we can kind of build these boundaries where it's like, wait a second, I got a reputation now. Wait a second, I'm an older man. I don't do that kind of stuff anymore. I don't take those kind of risks anymore. And I don't care if it's even God that's telling me to do that. I won't even entertain that. I won't even entertain the idea of making that phone call or doing that thing or appearing foolish in, in taking that step of faith. I just won't even, I won't even consider it. I've got a safe little Christian life that is going to deliver me into heaven one day. And even though the world is being destroyed all around me, if God calls me to do something that moves outside of my comfort zone, I simply will not entertain it. And it's very easy to move into that place. 
and for us all the way to the end of the age of our life to look and to say, God, if it will further your message, if it's how you want to spend my life, I would have thrown my life away a thousand different ways by now and destroyed it. And if there is something of your purpose that can only be accomplished by asking me to do this thing, then I will do it and to take that step of faith. A tendency to gravitate towards safety, no risk, no faith. And I think you'll find, and I think all of us find, that God will not let us ultimately kind of settle there. He certainly didn't with Isaiah here. And so this, he said, I want you to do as a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia. And so shall, here's the meaning of this living parable that he has Isaiah living out. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And so one of the things that reasons... God did this with Isaiah was to get the attention of the people of Judah, not supremely the people of Ethiopia and Egypt. That wasn't his audience. But to communicate to them, don't put your trust in Egypt. Don't put your trust in Ethiopia. They're going to go into captivity after a period of three years. And so when Isaiah takes and all of a sudden he's walking around the way that he's walking around, nobody's seen this. Trust me, he's got everybody's attention, which is the idea. The culture, even the culture of God among God's people, they've become so hard to God, so hard to God's voice. It takes so much to break through. And for God to speak something to them, this is what it took. But it got their attention, which was the whole point. And when they said, Isaiah, what in the world are you doing? Well, what I am doing is I am demonstrating to you the future of Egypt and the future of Ethiopia, the very people that you want to put your trust in instead of God to show you their future, that they are going to be taken captive by the Assyrians. And when he explained that to them, then for the remaining three years, every time they saw him, that message went through their head again. And then, verse 5, they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory, who they wanted to put their trust in. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? And then in chapter 21, he uh, begins a... Uh, a uh, prophecy against uh, Babylon. And uh, we wonder why in the world is he introducing a prophecy against Babylon at this particular point? Because uh, uh, during the 8th century, the children of Israel, when they weren't trying to, or Judah, when they weren't trying to put their attention or, or 
gain an alliance with Egypt in order to deal with their problems. And, and uh, they thought that wasn't the winning hand. Then they began to approach uh, Babylon. But even before Babylon was a world-ruling empire. And so here is the burden against the wilderness uh, of the sea. And we know from verse 9 that he's referring to Babylon there and its position uh, related to the sea. As whirlwinds in the south, he describes this great uh, fact that uh, Babylon is going to one day be overwhelmed by a great military force. And he uses poetic language. He says they're going to be overrun and overwhelmed in the same way uh, that a sandstorm in a desert overwhelms everything in its path. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer, speaking of Babylon, deals treacherously and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam. And Elam was a, a portion of uh, Persia, besiege O Media, speaking of the Medes, all its sighing I have made to cease. And so God speaks of uh, Babylon and, e- and Israel wanting to put their hope in Babylon. And God looks and speaks to them about the uh, destruction that would one day come upon Babylon. Babylon's several steps down the road here. Assyria is the world-ruling empire. They would ultimately be uh, replaced by Babylon as the world-ruling empire who would then be overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Here's a prophecy that's being given concerning Babylon 200 years before the event. Wouldn't it be something to pick up a newspaper and and, and be given the newspaper for 200 years from now on planet Earth? That's exactly what God gave to them that here he is prophesying of the fact that they would fall prey to a confederation of kingdoms known as the Medes and the Persians one day and that they would be completely destroyed and overwhelmed before they even became a world-ruling empire. Only God can do that. Only God knows history beforehand in that way. And when Isaiah sees in this kind of vision and he hears about the destruction of the greatness of Babylon, therefore my loins were filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. Uh, Men, uh, for you, uh, like passing a kidney stone, if you've ever had uh, that. It... Well, I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear uh, for me. Prepare the table. Set a watchman in the tower. Eat, drink, arise, you princes. Uh, anoint the shield. And so the idea is that Babylon would be overthrown uh, while they were in the midst of feasting and parting, which is exactly what happened as we'll see one day in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 5. And so the fall of Babylon will be so dramatic, so awesome, that it had a physical impact upon Isaiah, uh, not even being a part of it, but just processing the prophecy. For thus has the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. And then he cried, A lion, my Lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. 
And then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all her carved images of her God he has broken to the ground. And so God says to Isaiah, I want you to set a watchman, so to speak. And I have prophesied to you of the fall of Babylon. Set a watchman to uh, be listening and watching for and waiting for the news of Babylon's fall. In other words, God says to Isaiah, I'm giving you this prophecy concerning the future fall of Babylon. But I don't want you just to listen to the prophecy. The prophecy is supposed to impact how you live, how you process life. And if you believe this prophecy to be true, then you're going to set out a watchman who will then bring news to you of the fall of Babylon. And, and so live consistent with the prophecy that I've given to you. Live as if that prophecy is true and going to come true. And for Isaiah, it was to establish and to set up uh, a watchman upon the tower. Jesus spoke in the same way teaching us as Christians that we should be watching and waiting for his return, for the rapture of the church. He's given us a promise that he's coming back. He's told us what the world is going to be like in the last days, spiritually, morally, geopolitically, in all these different ways, told us what it would, the world would look like so that we wouldn't just know it as prophetic information in our mind, but that we would then realize this is going to happen and I need to live my life in a way that's consistent with this happening. And Jesus said, the consistent way for us to live as Christians and the light of the prophecies that he's given us concerning his return is to not set another watchman, but for us to be watching and to be waiting and to be working the three W's of those parables that he gave in Matthew chapter 25 as a part of his Olivet Discourse so that when the return of Christ does happen for the rapture of the church, we will be watching, we will be waiting, we won't be drunken, we won't be partying, we won't be engaged in sin, we won't be invested in the world, but invested in the things of God. Prophecy isn't given to just fill our heads with a bunch of knowledge, but it's given in order that we would live a life that's consistent with what God has said will happen because it will happen. One day or one night in some moment, less than a moment, in the time that it takes the light to reflect off of your eye, Jesus Christ is going to come back and there's going to be a trump and there's going to be a shout and we are going to be taken out of this place into the glory of heaven and to the marriage supper of the Lamb to be away from this world during the seven-year tribulation period. And that could happen at any time. And God said we're to live that way, consistent uh, in the, uh, the idea of living out before the world and before the church, before God's people, that God has said it, I believe it, it's going to happen, and I'm going to live consistent with that. And so the watchman was ordered to be given, and then Isaiah declared, O my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I declare to you. And so uh, addressed here in verse 10 to Judah, that the destruction of Babylon uh, would bring a, an end to 
all of their bondage there that would occur and was yet future for them at that time. And uh, that prophecy was intended here to be a great comfort to them. Then he begins, moves on to speak of a woe to Edom, the Edomites. And he said, the burden against Duma, Duma means silence and and the idea is that Edom is going to be so wiped out by the Assyrians that the country's going to be like silent. You're going to hear crickets. And so the burden against Duma, he calls out to me in Seir. This is how we know that he's speaking of Edom. Mount Seir was a mountain range uh, and still is in Edom, what is known as in the ancient uh, nation of, of, uh, of Edom, now modern-day Jordan. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And the watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. And if you inquire, inquire, return and come back. And so a wa- somebody comes to the watchman who's watching for the coming of the Assyrian army. And what's the news of the battle? And he says to the watchman, what's happening? And the watchman says, yeah, it, it's very, very dark. The news isn't good. But recently the news has been better. It looks like we've got a little bit of light, but it's not going to stand it's all going to become darkness. All of Edom is going to fall to the uh, Assyrians. And then he moves on to Arabia, the burden against Arabia. In the forests in Arabia you will lodge, O you dwelling, uh, traveling companies of the Dedanites, O inhabitants of the land of Tema, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled. And so here is talking about the nomadic tribes of Arabia. You think, all right, um, if the world is in the condition that it's in at that time, the Assyrian Empire conquering the world, then they would come to these walled cities or any cities and they would overcome them. So maybe the thing to do, the one group that would be able to withstand this Assyrian juggernaut would be the nomadic tribes who knew the desert, knew how to roam the desert, knew how to hide in the desert. But God says even they are not going to be able to escape uh, the Assyrians. They will be judged and they will be wiped out. In other words, there's no escape but turning to God. No escape at all. And uh, boy, all of this is just a small picture of what's going to happen in the great tribulation with the Antichrist. There will be no escape from him uh, apart from, you know, turning to God, becoming a Christian during that period and a person will be martyred for their faith at that particular point in time. But here, in, in this particular prophecy here, uh, even, even in the desert, there was no escape from uh, this invasion. The people are fleeing in these great caravans, and they're instructed to other people to give them water, give them bread as they're fleeing, for they fled from the swords and from drawn sword, from the bent bow and the distress of war. Verse 16, for thus the Lord has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fall. These nomadic tribes will be taken and defeated and conquered by Assyria. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished for the Lord God uh, of Israel has spoken it. And so it happened exactly as God declared. Let's have the worship team come forward at this time and let's stand together. We'll pick things up in chapter 22.
next week. And let's pray together now. Father, we see it in your Bible and in the chapters that we've looked at tonight for how long it took nation after nation after nation after nation after nation to finally come to realize that there was no hope in the world apart from you. And we realize that nothing is new under the sun. We live in the same world, Lord. And we wonder, what will it take the United States and Europe and Africa and South America and Asia and all these different places in the world for them to wake up and to realize how dangerous the game is that they are playing and their rejection of you for their own wisdom and then Lord to only find out too late that they were blind to the most important thing in the world and that was what you were doing and we thank you Lord tonight as your people for the fact that we do not have to share in that blindness Thank you for opened eyes. Thank you for your Holy Spirit within us. Thank you for the ability to process life in the events of this world, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. We thank you even for how difficult that is, this blessing and this curse of opened eyes, of being able to see Life and the world as clearly as we do. And how painful it is for us to watch those, Lord, who make decisions nationally, internationally, in our own families, Lord, that are so destructive when the solution is so simple and before them. And we thank you that you have given us a different lens a proper lens with which to view the world and to view history. And that lens of your Holy Spirit and your word, Lord. Thank you for the hope that we have that is in you. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit who is unceasing in our lives to get us to build the totality of our life upon the solid rock of your word and not some part there and part in the world. And Lord, I pray and we pray for any person that stands here today, any Christian that has some high-bred Christianity, some one foot in your kingdom and one foot someplace else in the world, and they haven't yet come to realize how serious the stakes are and how serious this moment in human history is, that you would use this time tonight to awaken them 
to the fact that the events of this world are intended to drive them deeply and completely into you, Lord. And I pray that that great voice and that lesson of these chapters would be as thunder where it would be necessary in the spirit of each one that needs to make a change in the light of that truth and in the light of the history that you have foretold us concerning the hour in which we're living. And I ask and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.